we're heading into spring and I'm thinking about my grill and I'm going to go out there and I'm going to burn some meat. God damn it. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Welcome once again to Free Associations from the Boston University School of Public Health, the Public Health and Medical Journal Club podcast. For anyone who is as confused by the latest health study as I am by why my dog (laughs) feels the need to walk in and shake his collar at the beginning of an episode. Do you guys have uh, any animals interrupting you guys? Not me. I've locked them out. Yeah, you're smart. See, mine, my door doesn't close. So what happens is the dog will be outside and then he will just bust through the door like the Kool-Aid man when I'm in the middle of something. So I try to bring him in beforehand, but there you go. Anyway, I am Matt Fox from the Departments of Epidemiology and Global Health at the Boston University School of Public Health. And I am joined once again by Dr. Chris Gill from the Department of Global Health. Welcome, Chris. Hey, Matt. And I am also joined by Dr. Don Thea from the Department of Global Health. Welcome, Don. Chris, Matt. Hey, Don. And as a reminder, if you could head on over to the Population Health Exchange website at www.pophealthdx.org. That's BU's hub for lifelong learning. Lots of interesting public health programming tools and uh, educational materials there. And also a reminder, if you could go and give us a rating on iTunes or Stitcher or whatever your podcast app is, it helps other people find us. Guys, we have a couple of new reviews that I wanted to read to you. The first one is from... I'm going to say it's Y. Sanjay from the U.S. It is entitled Infotainment at its Best. It says, I love the science and the humor. Another five-star rating. Wow. And the second one comes from Germany from C-A-K-E-N-G-E-R. Kekendra, I don't know how you pronounce that. It says, I certainly have no clue what fractional veganism is supposed to be, but this is the best epidemiology podcast in the world. So a couple more (laughs) happy listeners out there. Wow. Thank you very much for taking the time to write in. We very much appreciate it. Yeah, we love it. I would also say that there are probably not very many extraterrestrial epidemiology podcasts, so we might be the best in the universe. (laughs) At At least the solar system. (laughs) <laughs> it is probably true, That's although right. if you if you believe in the infinite worlds theory, there's got to be at least one more universe with a, a, a podcast on epidemiology out there. So there you go. Ah, I hope we're better than they are. Maybe there's a parallel universe yeah, no, with no, a no, really no, bad version of us. Um, isn't that this for? Isn't that this universe? <laughs> <laughs> they, they're probably uh, uh, hosted by a guy called Hat Pris and Khan. Bizarro world. Yes, there you go. So now on to the show. So today in our first segment, which is our Journal Club segment, we are going to look at a study on the relationship between diabetes in pets and in their humans. Then in the second part of the podcast, which is our deep dive, we're going to talk about who won the showdown between Elsevier and the University of California. And then our third segment is our Amazing Amusing, where we get to some things that make us laugh out loud or in Chris's case, tend to fascinate us. So let's get into our segment one. This was sent to us by uh, Victoria Ryan from Drexel University, and and it it was interesting enough that we wanted to take it on. I do want to point out that this is from the Christmas edition of the BMJ. So, you know, you you can do what you want with that, but it is actually a real piece of research, at least, you know, in my read of it. I'm sure it's 
entirely possible that I'm being completely duped here, but it seems like a real study and it doesn't allude to being a joke in any way. So while it may be a little tongue in cheek, uh, it does seem to be a, a, a real study worth investigating. So the article is entitled The Shared Risk of Diabetes Between Dog and Cat Owners and Their Pets. It was published in the BMJ. Oh, sorry. I, I messed up the title. The Shared Risk of Diabetes Between Dog and Cat Owners and Their Pets Registered-Based Cohort Study by first author Rachel Ann Delicano of the Department of Medical Sciences in Uppsala, Sweden. There were some headlines on this one. So The Guardian says dog and owners may share resemblance in diabetes risk, playing off the dogs and their owners look like each other. Medwire News says diabetes in dogs could serve as early warning to owners. Mm, I'm less Mm. clear on whether that one holds up. Yeah, I don't think that's what all what they said. Yeah. News 18 says dogs have the same risk of diabetes as their owners. Study finds. Mm, again. No. Not so no. sure. And <laughs> no. Cosmos. Cosmos. <laughs> These people actually read the studies? No. My goodness. They don't. They don't. They read the title. And, They're just trying to be witty. And, and ahead, Cosmos man. magazine says, do you both need to go walkies more? <laughs> well, that was so, Cosmo? Okay. That was Cosmo, yeah, Cosmo magazine? I don't think that's Cosmo. Yeah. Cosmo um, Kramer. So anyway, whatever, whatever you want to do with that one. So right. uh, Don, can let me start with you. But before you tell us what this study was all about, are you a dog person or a cat person? I'm a neither person, unfortunately. Oh, yeah. Yep. Okay, actually, that makes sense. Yeah, actually, I'm a, yeah, if I had my druthers, I would I would own reptiles. Oh, what kind? Uh, not a Komodo dragon, that's for sure. Oh, but okay. How about a monitor lizard? I like geckos. I really, really like geckos. They are cool. I'd like anything that can regrow a limb. Yeah. Can they do that? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh. That's wow. pretty cool. Very cool. All right. All right. Well, so, Don, tell us, tell us what the study was about. So <laughs> my big question about this research study was why? Why would they do this study and why is it of interest to look at the correlation in the development of diabetes between people and their pets? Uh, but in any event, so mm-hmm. uh, this was a, 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 actually a fairly interesting research project in terms of the way they did it in, in Sweden, which is a country like we've covered a number of times before with other sorts of research studies that use sort of national databases. And they had access to two national databases that they, that they mined to generate the, the data for this particular study. And one was National Health, Human Health Records, which um, Sweden, I think, keeps a, a, a complete set of national health records. And they also used the largest animal pet insurance company, which, by their estimation, has insurance coverage for 40% of the dog's in the, in Sweden and twenty three percent of the cats, so we started off with somewhat. Me. Of a, well, somewhat, yeah, surprised me that it was that high, frankly. But still, it's not. It's far from complete, and you know, there's all sorts of bias that might be introduced by who can afford cat insurance and who can afford dog insurance. But in any event, so what they did is they linked these these data sets which is made possible by a unique Swedish ID number. And they found that there were 151,000 dog owners and 74,000 cat owners who were born before 1961. And they restricted it to that because they they wanted to um, have a population of people who were older and at higher risk of potentially developing diabetes or having diabetes during the, the period 
January 2004 to December 2006, which is the period of observation from from which they they called the data. They also included 94,000 spouses of the Mm. dog owners, which I thought was kind of curious, and 41,000 spouses of the cat owners. (laughs) So you can begin to see how how looking at the relationship between a human and a, and a, and a pet living in the household becomes, begins to get somewhat complex because you've got dyads or pairs of, of people that are, are, are overlapping. So they excluded the 4,000 individuals who died or moved prior to the end of the observation period or, or 2007, 7,000 people with unclear baseline or follow-up data. They exclude people with more than 20 pets. <laughs> Uh, which yeah, they're just weirdos. Yeah, because they can, they're, they're weirdos or no, breeders. No, no, no. Or breeders. 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 Yeah. Right. Oh, so they're going to have oh, less oh, of a okay. relationship with their animals. But they restricted it to, to people who, in fact, had less than 10 pets. So there were some people in this data set that mm-hmm. had nine pets. So they're not breeders. Right. They're just weirdos, maybe. Well, then, they could be breeders. They're just fewer Fewer pets than Le- where they decided to less, cut off. Less prolific breeders is what they are. <laughs> and if and if an individual owned a dog and a cat, they did a separate analysis for each of those pair. And I guess if you had several dogs, they did a separate analysis for each one of those dogs and that owner. So their final data set include two hundred and eight thousand dogs and a hundred dog owners and one hundred twenty three thousand cat owners. And they had 175. Uh, we've got we've got comments from a dog owner's dog here in the background. I hear that, Matt. We we do. My my dog yeah. has been sitting here um, reviewing this study in excruciating <laughs> detail. I'm sure your dog has lots of comments on this. All right, so we have 175,000 dog owner dog pairs, uh, and I think somewhat less cat owner cat pairs. So what they did is they took these dyads, and if they if the dog and if the owner and the animal had diabetes at baseline, they were omitted from the analysis because there's nowhere to go. They censored any deaths, loss of follow-ups, or, or or owners and dog pairs who either terminated their pet insurance or emigrated out of the country. And then they looked at transitions during this this period of time, and there were four possible transmissions where. The owner was negative and the dog was negative and switched to the owner being positive, meaning developed diabetes, and the dog didn't. Both were negative, and then the dog developed diabetes, but the owner didn't. The dog had diabetes and transitioned to the owner, plus the dog having diabetes, and uh, vice versa. The owner had diabetes, the dog didn't, and then transitioning to both um, having diabetes. And they calculated the hazard ratios for each of these transitions separately for dog owners and for cat owners. And they adjusted for age, sex of the owner, pet, and the breed group. And this is something that I didn't really realize, but apparently is a thing that there are breeds of cat and breeds of dog Mm -hmm. that have a higher propensity for developing diabetes. And a few of the high-risk diabetes dog breeds are West Highland White Terrier, Hamilton Hound, Poodles, miniature or toy poodles, have a tendency to develop diabetes. 
And then uh, low risk of diabetes would be Jack Russell Terrier, miniature Dachshunds, German Shepherds, Bearded Collies. And then as far as – I thought this might be of interest to the listener. As far as cat breeds are concerned, a high risk of developing diabetes are Burmese cats, Russian blue cats, Norwegian forest cats, European short hairs. And the ones that are low risk of developing diabetes are the Maine coon cat, the British short hair, mm. the Siberian, the ragdoll, and the Bengal cat. I've not heard about the. Hopefully that's not a Bengal tiger. So in any event, they 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 adjusted for breed group, SES, country of birth, population density, and a bunch of other other factors. So as far as the results are concerned, ninety four percent of the dog pairs in in neither of the individuals was there diabetes or did diabetes develop. So they're really looking at six percent of this whole cohort, and the median follow up was about three and a half years. The incidence of diabetes in the dog owners was seven point seven cases per thousand person years follow up, and 1.3 cases per thousand dog years of follow up. And that immediately raises the question of, do they really mean dog years or do they mean people years and dog? Mm -hmm. did, 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 they, did they divide by seven or what do you, how do you convert? <laughs> I don't know. They don't, they don't specify. They, they basically said 1,000 dog years. I'd say so, that's a major limitation. I think it is too. Uh, no, I think I think a dog year was uh, a, a a human a human year in a dog. Yes, I, or maybe I, they just did they it did. in dog in dog years and multi multiplied by seven. Yeah, could be. I don't know. Maybe I think it's I think it's it actually absolute, be much quicker. It's an absolute failing that they didn't explain what they did or didn't do because so of course true. it's going to so be going to come up. Maybe the Swedes don't think about dog years like we do. Maybe not. Mm. So in any event, so so the incidence of diabetes in owners is sevenfold greater than it is in, in dogs. But when they when they looked at the hazard ratio of developing diabetes in the owner of the dog, it was in fact statistically significant. It was about thirty percent increase likelihood that you would develop diabetes if your dog had diabetes. And there was about a similar, about a 20% increase in the hazard ratio of developing diabetes in the dog if the owner had diabetes. Mm -hmm. now, now, they did this. They did the same analysis for cats, and they found that, that cats also had a lower incidence of diabetes than humans, um, but that there was no association with the development of diabetes in the human if the cat had it or in the cat if the human had it. Right. That rings true to me, by the way. I think this is an important <laughs> internal control. <laughs> no, I think you're what, right, Chris. You're going to have to say more. <laughs> I think you're right. No, it, it really does make a lot of sense. So anyway, that's the bottom line is that if your dog develops diabetes, you should probably get a fasting blood sugar. Yeah, I guess that's right. <laughs> okay, well, it's, so, it's the ultimate so, uh, nature versus nurture uh, yeah. analysis, right? Because there, there, we, we will stipulate that there's no genetic linkage between the dog and the dog's <laughs> owner, right? One would, one would assume. Correct. So Correct. any Correct. any effects are entirely due to nurture rather than nature. Um, that and is, I, I, that know, is probably and, true. You know, as as a dog owner, I have two dogs and I have a cat. Right. 
And and so I can say unequivocally that the cat does not give a fig what I do. The cat's <laughs> behavior is up to the cat. He is not influenced by my encouragements or my discouragements. He is just on his own pathways. So the idea that my behaviors will somehow affect the cat seems to be a little bit tenuous. But on the other hand, the dogs are totally tuned into me and they want to do what I want to do. And so if I'm like lazing about the house, they laze about the house. But if I say, hey, let's go walkies, they're like, let's go walkies. Yes. You know, so, you know, I kind of I kind of see that like my, you know, my behavior has a great effect on it on my dog. And I can also imagine very easily that if I had purchased a dog that was, you know, let's say kind of a lazy dog, like a basset hound who just wants to sleep all day, you know, that I would like probably get down on the rug with the basset hound and sleep all day. So I, I, I also <laughs> can imagine that it's bi-directional. Right. That that I am riffing off of my dog's behavior. It's not just the dog mimics me, but I may, in fact, mimic the dog. So I I think this is this is groundbreaking stuff. <laughs> OK, so so, Chris, you, you seem to buy it. Now, I do I do worry that this entire episode is going to turn into us telling stories about our pets. But I do have to say that, Don, you mentioned in the beginning that one of the cat breeds that was at low risk for diabetes was the Maine Coon. And I had a Maine Coon cat for a long time named Ira. And Ira oh, one I time. Oh, I remember brought, Ira. And he, oh, yeah, you, you would remember Ira. Ira yeah. caught and brought into our house a live crow. I don't know how he caught the thing. Wow. But he wow. he caught it. it. It was bigger than he was. And he dragged it into our house. It was, it was, anyway. So... Okay, so Chris, you 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 seem I can't tell based on the way you were laughing whether you truly buy this or whether you're just uh, you're making the um, observation that people tend to behave like their their dogs in particular, not so much like their cats. Presumably, if this is real, and I will stipulate that it's a you know if this is real, but if this is real, it's not causal, right? Presumably. One, your pet getting diabetes does not cause you to get diabetes, right? No. <laughs> no, okay. it does it's, not. So, it's, so, but it is a matter of shared risk factors. Sure, sure. And I, and I think that's interesting because, again, if, if, if it could be potentially an early warning sign to humans, hey, you know, you may be at risk for diabetes – then you could, you know, you could use that in an interesting way. But the reason I bring it up is if if the reason to do this is for reasons of correlation and not causation, and I apologize for turning a study that we clearly find amusing into a serious methods point, but if that's the case, <laughs> then why adjust for a bunch of things, right? The idea here is not to try and say, you know, what is the effect of pet diabetes on human diabetes? It's to say, does having a pet, or in this case, a dog with diabetes, uh, signal that the human is more likely to develop, in which case you don't want to adjust for a whole bunch of things. You might adjust for a few things. There are some reasons why you might do it. But I just, I, I found that curious that you would ever, unless you believe this to be a causal relationship, that you would do all this statistical adjustment that they did. So that's my that's sort of my main critique of the study. What would be the factors that you think would be reasonable to adjust for in this setting? 
So it's not that you would want to adjust for anything specifically so much as you might want to stratify it. If you believe that the correlation was different for, you know, older pet owners than younger pet owners, which would make sense to me, then you might stratify by, you know, age and, and sex, but you wouldn't adjust for it specifically. You just look at whether the correlations are different. Now, that does obviously inherently do some statistical adjustment, but it's the point being you want to know is the prediction better in in certain groups because then you would say, you know, if you're a 23-year-old and your dog develops diabetes, this isn't anything to worry about as a human. But if, if you're a, you know, 45-year-old and your pet develops diabetes, then you should worry. We'd want to know that. But that's different from saying we still think it's, you know, the, the dog getting diabetes causes you to get diabetes. Mm-hmm. 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 But what about like if if you were to to be a little bit bolder here and try to argue that there is a causal relationship, like let's just say, okay, for instance, let's go there. Okay, let's go you there. Know, this is dangerous, but but let let's 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 play this out a little bit. You would probably want to to know a lot more about these these dog pet diets, right? You want to know, you you know, what is the exercise habits of the dog? How many times? Does the the pet owner take the dog out for walks? Is it does the pet owner ever take the dog out for walks? Does the the pet owner you know use a dog walker instead of taking the dog out for walks? Like you know if you're thinking mm-hmm. that you know I have diabetes and and I I got I became diabetic because I was overweight and I became overweight because I didn't actually I was sedentary you know for example I'm I'm sort of describing you know the hypothetical me here. I could imagine that that those behavioral traits would would maybe in subtle or not so subtle ways affect the way I reared my pet. And so I would not exercise the pet and I might overfeed the pet. I'm overfeeding myself. Maybe I give the dog twice as many kibbles as the dog would need. And so I'm I'm sort of like, you know, I'm doing to the dog what in a sense I'm doing to myself. And that is why we both got diabetes. And and so that is kind of a causal relationship in in a way, right? If we're if we're thinking about it as as a, a set of behaviors that probably or originates in the in the owner rather than in the pet, though I suppose it could go in both ways. But but because the owner has the decision making power, I would say it's more likely to go in that direction than the other. Interesting. It's an interesting take. I I I mean I still think you're you're talking about shared risk that rather than one you know, having your pet's diabetes cause your diabetes. Right. But it's, it's a little bit different from saying like, we both live near the nuclear power plant. Right. And that's why we both got lymphoma. Right. It's not that my mm-hmm. lymphoma caused the dog's lymphoma. It's because we're both proximate to the lymphoma inducing agent. But here, the, yep. the, the distinction is that the the behavior that increases my risk for diabetes could be the same behavior in terms of my pet rearing style that would increase the dog's risk for diabetes. And so that's yep. why I think that there is a little bit more of an argument to be made for causality in this one, in this in this uh, example. Well, again, I, I I still don't think though it, the the causality I agree with, but the causality is the the shared behaviors it's not the the diabetes in the pet causing the diabetes in the in the the owner it's the the reason that the the dog is getting the diabetes is the same reason that the owner is getting diabetes so it's uh, yes. it's, it's 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 cause i mean obviously there is a cause of both sources of diabetes but it's a it's a common source it's not that one one case of diabetes is causing the other okay so in so in that sense it it, it is 
it does mean we have to go backwards. We're not. You, I, I see your point entirely now. It's not. It's not the diabetes per se. It is the risk factors that in, that created the diabetes that is actually the explanatory variable. But that's somewhere upstream that we have not observed and has not been described in this analysis. In fact, the authors cite other work that showed that there was a strong association between the use of dog treats and the the owner weight. So it, it's entirely possible that, in fact, that kind of behavior where you're, you're giving your dog a lot of treats or a lot of table scraps correlates well with your, you know, your overweight status, uh, in fact, sort of underscores what you're saying, Chris, right? Mm-hmm. That's right. And, you know, so, so there is a direct sort of interrupted chain of causality there along the along lines of what you were saying, Matt. Yeah, but again, just just to emphasize that I I don't think that the the one case of diabetes is causing the other. It's the it's the shared chain of of right. causation. I think we all agree with that. The 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 other thing that they bring up as a as a you know I don't say explanation, but as explaining some of the correlation is or or maybe they didn't bring it up in quite as much detail, but I was thinking about it. Is the is the the surveillance bias problem that if you have a, a pet who develops diabetes, you suddenly learn more about diabetes, become more aware of diabetes, and then you go and get your diabetes checked. So right. you right. find out you have diabetes. I, and I wouldn't think that would, I wouldn't that think that would explain the entire correl- correlation, but it does seem to me like it could explain some of it. I don't know if you guys had the same reaction. Mm-hmm. Yes, I sure. did. No, possible. Yeah, yep. very possible. Okay, so where do you land on this? Should we all, should everybody have a, a dog after a, a certain age so that we can uh, use use dogs as our... No, clearly everybody should have a cat. That'll prevent diabetes. Uh, no, I don't think that is, <laughs> I don't think that is the message here. <laughs> I, I think that no, of course. having that's a, a cat... That's totally what we've concluded, isn't it? I am. I am pretty sure you are. You are officially uninvited from guest lecturing in any of my epidemiology <laughs> courses. <laughs> okay. Well, in that case, why don't we? Uh, why don't we move on to you know, our, there, our second there, segment? One other, there's one other. There's one other issue when you're comparing sort of the 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 cat dog relationship to diabetes, and that is that. And I didn't realize this. That it is Swedish law that you have to walk your dog every six hours and they don't have the same law for cats. What? So. You can't walk a cat. Yeah, you can't. That's really cruel. Have in you fact. ever tried to walk a cat? You can't. <laughs> no, I haven't. You, you can't, you can't, you There's can't the, walk a cat. I, I, the attempts to do so are well-documented in the story of the three-fingered man. The three-fingered yes. man. Oh, yeah, the he guy lost who, his fingers because he, he tried to, to walk a cat. Right. Got it. Got it. Yep, took me a second there. Sorry about that one. Okay, let's uh, let's move on to our second segment, which is our deep dive. And so we talked about on an earlier episode of the podcast the standoff that was happening between the publisher Elsevier, which we all agree charges a ridiculous amount of money for its publications and that libraries end up paying exorbitant fees to access the journals where many of their authors, uh, many of their faculty members are publishing and paying exorbitant fees to publish at least open access in these same journals while also doing peer review for these journals for free. So we took issue with the, the business model and the fact that these companies were making excessive amounts of money off of this. 
So uh, the University of California basically said they were not going to continue to subscribe to all of the Elsevier journals. Elsevier is one of the largest publishers of academic journals and, or scientific journals. And so there was sort of a standoff and they have now come to a resolution. So this was an article that was covering this that talked about, they say, two years after the University of California in a push for open access to publicly funded research, the University of California and Elsevier are able to bridge differences and reach an agreement that is mutually beneficial while helping advance the critical work of researchers worldwide. And this was a, a press release from the, the university. So under the, so they've, they've got a four-year deal in which all research with a University of California lead author published in one of any of Elsevier's many journals will have their research published open access by default. And these you know, include the, uh, a whole number of journals, including the Cell Journals, the Lancet Family of Journals, which are you know, some of the, the top scientific research journals. University researchers will also be able to read articles published in Elsevier journals. So they'll have, again, access to these journals and they're going to do it. So, there, you know, there's these fees for open access publishing. They're going to be able to do it at a substantially reduced fee structure. So I don't know if either of you went in and actually read the details of the agreement. So but in the agreement, they say. University of California researchers can now publish open access in more than 2,500 Elsevier journals with significant support from the library. They will get a reduced article processing charge for all articles, 15% for most journals and 10% for journals from Lancet and Cell. Full coverage of the article processing charge by the library for authors who do not have access to grant funding and partial coverage of article processing charges by the library for authors who are able to contribute from their grants. When I first read this, I assumed that the reduced article processing charge was 15% of the fee. So if it was a, you know, a, or 10% of the fee, so if it was $1,000, it would become 100 but I now realize it's 15, I think it means a 15% reduction. So it's still going to be a substantial fee, but they're going to support their Cal University of California authors in being able to cover that fee, which you know is something that I think would would help a lot of, of us who, you know, even if we have grant funding that can cover some of the fees, it may only cover one publication for that particular grant or two publications when you may in fact have four or five different publications and then you're scrambling to to find funding for those remaining publications. So Chris, let me start with you. Do you think that the University of California won here or did they essentially accept an agreement that is, you know, better than what most libraries are getting, but is still essentially a substantial cost to the university while not really putting a huge dent in Elsevier's profits. What do you think? Mm, I mean, hmm, I don't know. Uh, I'm struggling to come up with something clever to say at this point. I, I, I actually have very little to say about whether I think they won or lost. I think the whole publishing model is, is still kind of bonkers. And I, I guess, you know, it was great that the University of California pushed back and got themselves a discount. But is, is that really the, the big problem here that, you know, the, the cost of 
you know, paying for publications by researchers is is, is the problem, or is it really the the publishing model itself is kind of wacky? I, I, you know, we recently got invited to submit an article for some, you know, some journal uh, on some topic that they wanted us to write about. And so a bunch of us got together and we wrote this paper. We, you know, none of us were grant funded to do this. It took a certain amount of time, you know, so, you know, we're basically, you know, taking time out of our funded activities to do this activity for free. And then at the end of it, the journal wanted us to pay publication charges. And I just thought that was, that was Mm. outrageous. Right. Like you asked for the damn article. We spent our time. We didn't get paid for it. And now you want us to pay you. You know, so that you have this article. This was a a reputable journal, Chris. This was not a a predatory journal. It was a real journal. It was a real journal. I won't name it by name, but you know, it just it felt like, you know, here's such an egregious example of the the insanity of the publication model that we have now contributed labor for free and are expected to pay the journal to do the thing that they asked us to do. I mean, it just like made me so cross. Wow, that is really, really indicative of how messed up this model is. Yeah. That seems like a particularly egregious one. Did you pay it? Yeah, I did not pay it. I don't know who paid it or how it got resolved, but but uh, as far as I know, it got paid. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so it's, I mean, we, I think we are all in agreement that the funding model is pretty messed up. What, what seems strange to me is the fact that, that it continues because, you know, certainly we all rely on these journals you know, they publish a substantial amount of the of the content that we need to access to be able to do our research. And they are the place where we could we can put our research. But but I mean, given that we all everyone, everyone agrees that they're making an exorbitant amount of money off this and everyone seems to agree in academia that the funding model is messed up. Why is it that we can't all seem to come together to put a stop to it? Because, again, if we all you know, we're to agree for for the next, I don't know, pick an amount of time, for the next year, all academics are just going to say, we're not going to publish in any of your journals until you change your business model. And we're going to all publish, you know, open access online, you know, make up your own journal or, or you know, a, a journal that, that does have a, uh, or we're just going to do preprints or whatever it is. You know, presumably we could, we could exert real power. And yet there is, there just doesn't seem to be any appetite for taking on the fight either, which is why the University of California seems to be doing it alone. So, you know, I don't I don't know what the what the reason is, but it just seems like there is this is a fight that could be won. Maybe I'm overly naive. Don, do you mm-hmm. do you see a, a future where this changes? I do. I do. I, I, you know, I, I, I agree with you, Matt. And I and I, and I, I think that it's both exploitative and it gets in the way of the free exchange of scientific information, and it deprives large portions of the world of the critical information that is needed to, to make science go forward. But I do think that the, 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 the sort of um, ambient uh, regard of this situation is changing. And I think that the University of California is not as big a victory as we would have liked to have seen, but it is a victory. And I think that you know, the NIH has pushed back hard you know, on the uh, the f- f- fee for 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 publication and the limited availability by insisting that anything that the NIH funds has to also be available through the NIH for free. You know, and I think the Gates Foundation is is moving in that direction. You know, not only making the um, the, the the reports available at no cost, but also making sure that the data itself 
is available at no cost. No cost. So we're, I, I agree, we're, we're, we're not there yet at all by any means, but I do see movement in that direction and I can only keep my fingers crossed that it's going to continue because it is just, it is a sick system. It really is. It just is so infuriating. Yeah. I also know, I also know people that are refusing to do reviews because unless they get, you know, some sort of concession from a particular journal in terms of lowering the publication fees for X number of, um, you know, of reviews that you do, but you know, it's, they get free labor and they, and they just spend, they just extract so much money for all this free labor. Mm -hmm. So I suppose that would be another way to grind the system to a halt would be if, if everyone, instead of, you know, just continued to submit their articles as usual, but, but refused to do peer review. Now, I mean, you know, there is, really important research that needs to get out there. So we don't want to stop publishing. But there's nothing that says that your article has to be published in The Lancet in order for it to, you know, to to have an impact, we could set up a system that is parallel that does the same function, we we still go through peer review, we just don't do it through a journal and and publish things online, I you know, but that would take people being willing to take the the risk of giving up a, a Lancet paper or a New England Journal of Medicine paper in order for the for the greater long term benefit, and I, you know, I don't, mm -hmm. I, you know, that's not happening anytime soon. It seems. You know, I think the other thing that that is is going to be corrosive to 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 this to this issue is over the course of the last year, preprints have become, you know, they're controversial, but they have become sort of the standard with which the information is getting out out of the academy and into 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 the field, as it were. And it's got good aspects and it's got bad aspects. But I think that the top tier journals really, their business model is dependent upon their being the, the providers of the really newsworthy information or the, the really impactful scientific research. And I think that that is also under assault because of the, because of the move towards preprints. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's true, Don, for the for the top tier journals. But for for anything below that top tier, I don't know whether you know whether they really are the the arbiters of the you know or not arbiters, but of the ones bringing forward the really you know exciting new groundbreaking research. And you know, you, you I mean, those journals are also still requiring us to pay fees still requiring us to or asking us to be reviewers they still seem to be making a heck of a lot of money off of this the system that we have of using journals as a stamp of approval and you know let's be honest i mean universities look at the quality of your journal when you go up for promotion so if we were all just say hey for the next you know however long it takes nobody's going to publish in these big name journals, mm -hmm. then, you know, you're, you're taking a, a risk in terms of your, your career. So it just feels like we have given them so much power. It's, it's very hard to take it away. You know, there's, there's a rule at the New England Journal of Medicine. I don't know if it, it's, it's an official rule or if it ever was an official rule or if it's even in place anymore. It's called the Inglefinger. I think it's the Inglefinger rule where they, if you had, if you had pre-announced the findings of a paper at a national symposium or had published it in any way, shape, or form previously, that the New England Journal then would not accept uh, that that particular research finding. And I always saw that as they need to maintain their primacy in terms of splash, in terms of impact, in terms of being the place where the most newsworthy research comes out first. 
And, you know, it's a small mm-hmm. step, but maybe these pre- preprints are, are starting to chip away at that. But, you know, I, th- I would love it if, if some, somebody could pull together the entire, entire academic community and, in essence, what you're saying is boycott the top tier journals until they comply. But I, I, I don't have great hopes that that's going to happen. Yeah. Well, that's unfortunate. I share your, I share your feeling on that one. Let's hope that things go in a better direction. But for now, we will we'll we'll wait and see. Were, were either of you guys surprised at this claim that ten percent of all U.S. research flows through the University of California system? I was astonished by that. It's a big system. I don't know. I mean, so if you just think about the the, I mean, California is as a as you know, state as an economy, it's it's massive. So I suppose in some sense it doesn't surprise me that it accounts for a huge amount of the you know the the research in the United States. But I suppose on the other hand, they're also not the only university universities within California. So I yeah, it, it's 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 a big number. It's a big number. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but you think of you think of UCSF at UCLA and and Berkeley. Those those are powerhouses, and there's a lot of research that comes out of those sure. three institutions sure. alone. And then there's you know half a dozen other UC campuses, and then UC State also. So it's a huge, huge system. Yeah. Wow. I was still I was struck by that. That mm. I hadn't imagined it to be quite such a large fraction. Yep. All right. Well, let's move on to our last segment, which is our amazing and amusing. And I'm going to I'm going to go first here because I have a short one that's going to build on this idea of the of issues with journals. This is a story about an article that came out in March of 2020 in the American Journal of Biomedical Science and Research. And it was a it was a covid paper. The title of the paper was Ciliage City COVID-19 Outbreak Linked to Zubat Consumption. And the thing about Zubat, Z-U-B-A-T, Zubat Consumption. Yeah, well, so that is the point that uh, Zubat is a Pokemon character. (laughs) And so this was a made up sting type article done to expose a predatory journal. Now we have, oh, we have talked about many, we have talked about many of these stings, you know, over a period of time. This one was done by a, a, a author named Matan uh, Shalomi. So why am I talking about this? Given that we have talked about so many of these stings exposing predatory journals, what is particularly new about this one? And the thing that I found really interesting about this one is that the article, this wasn't the only article, but he had other articles that, that fell along this, these lines. The article itself contain lines in the text, such as, a journal publishing this paper does not practice peer review and must therefore be predatory. <laughs> or, this, this invited article is in a predatory journal that likely does not practice peer review. And it got published anyway. So it's like, <laughs> let's just put it completely out what there. Was, what, what was the journal? The point. It was the American Journal of Biomedical Science and Research. But I just thought, wow, that's taking it to a whole new level if you're just going to wow. tell them in the paper this is a sting and they don't even bother to to read it. So that one that one made me quite happy. Wow. 
That's awesome. That right. Chris, where you go? That is really Scraping the bottle yeah. of our barrel of cynicism there. That is, that is, yeah, going deep. Exactly. So, I'm a huge fan of American-style Chinese food. And I particularly mm, like Peking dumplings, Peking raviolis. And I have oh, a very yeah. strong oh, preference too. for pan-fried oh. over steamed. Oh, Pan-fried, yeah. in my totally. view, are like the, the Chris, only way to really enjoy absolutely. a Peking ravioli. Chris, Chris, can I stop you? <laughs> yes. Can I stop you and just show you? And just show yes. you? I don't know if you – oh, you won't be able to see it because it's not going to come up on the screen very well. In my inbox is a recipe for how to make Peking dumplings. Awesome. <laughs> well – there is a there is a reason, perhaps, why you and I and Don, I think, prefer yeah. the pan-seared version versus the steamed version. And it has to do Ooh. with the Maillard reaction. M-A-I-L-L-A-R-D. I know about that reaction. Yes. This is <laughs> food chemistry 101. Yes. It yes. is why so many of our favorite foods taste so good. And it is a chemical reaction between an amino acid and a sugar that occurs at a high temperature and it creates those beautiful brown tones crusts on, on like your roast beef or on your pan fried dumpling, or even when you're baking bread, the outside of the bread that when it turns golden brown like that is an example of the Maillard reaction. And, and the set of compounds, which may, you know, heat and form hundreds of subsidiary compounds are what give rise to so many of the delicious things that we associated with baking and roasting, including coffee and marshmallows and chocolate and mm. roasted meats and baked bread. And all of those are examples of the of the Maillard reaction. And I, and I, I, you know, I was thinking there's gotta be a reason why it is that people don't like to boil their beef nearly as much as they like to grill their beef. And this is mm. why is because those crusts on the outside taste so great. And one of the things I, I, I was looking at the Wikipedia uh, description of the Maillard reaction that, that, you know, is a common misconception is that when we talk about caramelized onions, caramelization you know, technically is when you're burning the sugars. These are basically burnt sugar. Mm -hmm. Whereas the Maillard reaction is a, is an interaction between amino acids in the food and the sugars. And so it's a totally different thing. But technically speaking, when we talk about caramelized onions, we're really talking about Maillard reactions in the onions. It's not caramelization, actually. It's, it's another example of the Maillard reaction, which is why boiled onions do not taste nearly as good oh, as fried onions. Oh, God. When they're dark and black mm. and they get kind of that sort of salty, meaty flavor, that's the Maillard reaction. And it's a little bit like, you know, why we love the flavor of umami in general. Uh, and the, the roasting mm. process is what brings out that umami. So we're heading into spring and I'm thinking about my grill and I'm going to go out there and I'm going to burn some meat. God damn it. <laughs> <laughs> and, All right. And the, <laughs> and, and the conclusion is, Chris, Everything is science. That's right. <laughs> exactly. Everything yep. is science. Even, is even peaking Chris. dumplings. Yep. Yep. Matt, what's Chris, up? Chris, Chris yep. just has to follow the science. Yep. We're yep. slaves to it. All right. So this week, Don, Don is out on the on the, uh, the Amazing and Amusing. So that is the end of our program. So if you have any feedback... On this or any other episode, or you want to suggest a study or a topic for us to take on, you can tweet us at, at PopHealthyX, or you can tweet me at, at PropMattFox, or Don at, at DThea1, or Chris at ID.Gill. Or you can find us on the Population Health Exchange website at www.pophealthyx.org. We want to thank Leslie Talalian 
Assistant Dean of Lifelong Learning at the BU School of Public Health for supporting the podcast, and Nick Guler for sound editing and remembering every episode that we have ever done and every detail contained therein. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed it, and we hope you will download our next episode. Bye.